0: Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. Last week, we came to you from Israel. This week, we are in Las Vegas. And I bumped into an old partner, colleague of mine, Caesar Johnson, who's the CEO of Energis, and made me realize that we needed to get him on the show. Energis are a really interesting company. They've been doing a lot of pioneering work in wireless power. And this is something that people have been looking at for some time. Can I power my phone wirelessly, recharge it wirelessly? And they've evolved from those sorts of use cases to IoT use cases. And they're a partner of Williot. We're going to be talking a bit about uh, what we do together. But uh, we'll also be talking more broadly about wireless power, uh, electronic shelf labels, another area that uh, they have specialized on, and the evolution of retail and the infrastructure that's needed to support it post-COVID. So, enjoy the discussion. The Mr. Beacon podcast is sponsored by Williot Intelligence for everyday things, powered by IoT Pixels. So, Caesar, welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. It's great to have you.
2: Oh, thank you very much, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you.
0: Well, it's kind of weird... We're we're both we're both in Las Vegas, so I'm just gonna turn my. Uh, so this is the view from my room, and nice. uh, but unfortunately, I left my recording gear behind. Otherwise, you and I would be sitting in the same room, and it would be uh, a little bit more uh, um, uh, human. But uh, we're back to COVID-style interviews, and um, so anyway, I'm glad we saw each other, and I just I've been wanting to get you on the show forever. So thanks for joining. Um, you, uh, run a really interesting company, uh, c- CEO of Energist. So I, I want to talk about. What Energist does, and um, or it broadly, I do want to talk in particular about the ESL market that you focus on, and then of course you and I know each other because Energis is a, a works with Williott partner, and so we have that in in common. I, I kind of want to get your perspective on uh, uh, where we are and what you do in that context as well. So the, we've got a lot to talk about. Maybe uh, we should kick it off and you can just introduce uh, energis uh, the company and explain a bit about what the company does
2: so definitely uh energis is a fabulous semiconductor company focusing the development of technologies that are specific to wireless power networks and when i say wireless power networks i'm talking about a radio frequency based energy transmission that allows you to send uh, and transmit power from transmitters into receivers uh from that perspective uh We are the company that wants to remove batteries, and the company that wants to remove wires. We see a world where we can deploy our technology, very similar, like we deploy Wi-Fi or other communication technologies, and energize rooms. And once you energize energize the rooms, you can have any, any type of receiver that basically can work within the operating limits of the power that we provide.
0: I mean it's a compelling vision. Obviously there's a lot of commonality with uh, Williot, the company where, where my day job is and uh, um, we'll, we'll get to that uh, later. but um, this what you're doing is actually quite different to what Williot does. We're, we're not thinking I mean you're like charging significant appliances. we're, we're driving these postage stamp sized uh, sensors. What, what sort of what, what is the scope of what is possible with this? Uh, you know, what I would describe as power transfer, radio power transfer technology, what kind of devices can you power?
2: So that's a very good question, and it can be answered in two ways. So let me answer it from a technology point of view first. From a technology point of view, there's no limit on the amount of power that you can send out. You can send watts of power, kilowatts of power, and get into very, very long distances and being able to actually charge large devices right but within the constraints of uh, regulations that might not be actually allowed right and you mm-hmm. have to have a certain level of power that effectively if you want to have humans in the room you have to constrain that power so, 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 so from that constraint power uh, regulation what, what happens is and, and the reason we exist as a company is that when we started the company uh, the regulations did not allow us to send effectively power of the air uh all the power that that's really sent over the air is constrained to communication networks to pretty much one watt uh, conducted power with uh, lots of limitations and overhead and no basically uh 100 or, or high capacity or high duration uh duty cycles right so so going back to uh, what we do in the company is we we build now devices that send the power that are within the certification parameters that we had to actually push forward because remember half a, half a millimeter. And today we're very happy to have no limitations on distance, specifically with our one watt power bridge, which is the, the, one of the main components that we actually interface to to the William tax. Mm-hmm. And recently, as of a couple of weeks ago, we were able to actually get our certification from the FCC where we can actually send 15 times more power than we did before all the way up to 15 watt conducted power. Okay.
0: And did something change that's uh, allowed you to break through that one watt ceiling? What? What?
2: Definitely. Was... So the so what we did in the company, besides all the patterns that we put together in this technology, is that we are experts not just in the technology and being able to build the systems and understanding uh, the certification process or not, but We also know what the human body can actually uh, take as far as the the amount of energy that is present without causing any damage, right? Mm -hmm. And we were able to identify and mix knowledge that uh, we had on the phone, on the phone world, with the communication world, and come up with a set of parameters that uh, we discussed with the FCC and ended up on a KDB. But just to summarize this, uh, there's a specific absorption rate level that the human body cannot exceed, which in the US is about 1.6 watts per kilogram of mass. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as long as you don't exceed that, you don't expose people to that level of uh, power, you'll be be safe. In fact, your phones are around 1.3, 1.4. So, Mm -hmm. but the great thing, and at the same time, the bad thing about RF is that the closer you are to the transmitter, the closer you are to the energy level but mm-hmm. the further you are from the transmitter because RF actually uh, goes down log- logarithmic logarithmic <laughs> in, in a logarithmic way yes. right i mean it goes down uh, to, in proportion to the square of the distance the level of power that you end up having when you're sitting on a desk assuming that your transmitter is on the top is really negligible so that effectively helps it helps us to deploy this technology in a safe manner and having humans. So as long as the human, for instance, in our uh, 10-watt transmitter is within 20 centimeters of that transmitter, there's no damage Mm. based on the measurements and the way uh, that we have actually built our, our transmitters and our antennas things like that. So
0: So, so do you you turn down the the, the gain uh, when, if someone's nearby, or how how do
2: you... No, no, it's all... Today, it's all on all the time. So our 15 watts is basically uh, approved to be on all the time without the distance limitations. But what your question says is something interesting, that if we can do 15 watts with humans inside the room, go imagine when they go to sleep and they're just... uh, premises are empty, and we can just jack it up to any level and then charge things even faster. Right. So, so right. That, that's another option that we have not explored with the transmitters that we have today with, with, with Williot. But you could potentially do that you could deploy let's say a 15 watt system today, no limit, no distance limitation in the US and then at night, you can jack it up to whatever you need. Now, you might complain to me and say, well, that's going to be expensive. Yes, it gets expensive because you you have to build now bigger transmitters. But if the company that you're dealing with is willing to pay the cost of that, then sure, it makes sense. So, so
0: what kind of devices can you power in, in a uh, practical way using the technology that passes those FCC regulations? Sure.
2: So our focus right now is being Internet of Things uh, devices that are in the in the milli milliwatt level, I mean, mm-hmm. one milliwatt, two milliwatts or so. Uh, But when we talk about power, we have to be careful. When we talk about energy, we have to be careful because you and I probably understand better than most people what I'm talking about. But reality is that we've all been educated to use batteries and the world of batteries, you charge the battery as fast as you can and you use the battery as much as you can. And you and I now live in a different world, which is you just send enough power to turn on the device whenever you need the device. And if you don't need it, you just save that, that power. Right? So the world has mm-hmm. changed. So now milli, milliwatts might not sound like a lot of power, but the reality is that it is plenty of power to even power uh, basically wearables. Okay, so so I would say all the way up from micro, amp, micro watts of power to to devices that, are, that could be wearables level, 100 milliamps. Or so, that could actually charge at 3, to 3 milli, milliwatts, and and that would be plenty to actually be charged within a 24-hour period, as long as you're on the energized realm.
0: Okay. So, IoT devices is the focus, and in the case of Williot's tags, yeah, we have a little uh, capacitor, and we accumulate the energy gradually, it's like a little uh, bucket filling up uh, with a stream of water, and then we have enough energy, and the bucket flips over, and suddenly you have you know, you've got enough to to do some interesting things. So um, we'll get to Williot in a bit. But I want to talk about uh, electronic shelf labels, how that that seems to be one of the applications that is really getting traction. I was over in Italy um, on holiday with my wife and son, and I went into all these stores, and they all had ESLs, electronic Mm -hmm. shelf labels everywhere. And What's, uh, what do you see happening in that market, and uh, what's your role in that market?
2: So, so as a company, uh, as of a year ago, we have focused on three markets. And we announced our third market about a month and a half ago. Our goal is to focus first on RF tags, which is what we do with WeLit. Uh-huh. ESL, as you pointed out, and then sensors. And when we come to sensors, temperature sensors, humidity sensors, CO2, air quality sensors, motion sensors, and so on, right? So in the case of ESL, you're correct. I was in Europe too recently. I was in France and Germany. And everywhere you walk in there, you'll see hundreds and hundreds of these tags and prices everywhere. The same thing is going on in Asia. So the reality is that this is moving faster in Europe than it's moving in the U.S., as simple as that. So, So ESL... And being able to display and being able to automate uh, the information that you provide to consumers and to potential customers is something that's happening, right?
0: Why is it happening? What is it that, what, what's, what's wrong with good old fashioned printed labels stuck on a little holder on the, on the shelf?
2: It's the same problem that you have with little labels that, that have little papers instead of video tags. <laughs> the, the number of of little tasks that you have to put together is so large and the overhead that you have is so uh, i guess large and and the time that it takes is just not effective and the the number of mistakes that people make is also pretty high so by automating and having real time uh dynamic uh a dynamic process can be developed by which things are more i guess up to date and yeah and, Mistakes will not be made. And of course, if you want to make now that, that is store dynamic, you can change that tag as, as the customer moves around. You move around and it was Steve, Steve likes this. Give him 10% and you'll get that 10%, right? So you can have thing.
0: happy hours, uh, discounts, yeah. but but also you get more information, right? You don't you? You, you can. It's not just the price; it's actually information that helps you buy, and, and that's what merchants are in the the business of doing: having all the the infrastructure to sell more stuff. So it, it makes sense. So we're seeing. So I, and I hear that America is going to be catching up. It seems like the major retailers are committing. ESLs over here, and a bit like the credit cards, you know. The over in Europe, they were all tapping for years, and now, now we're doing it. But it, uh, we're such a big country; it just takes time to for, for infrastructure renovations to happen. Even though we think of ourselves as being very progressive.
2: Yeah, that is true, but it could be also related to tax. Uh, what is it? Uh, taxation, right? I mean, I remember when I worked in the Bell System. You, if you ha- deploy a new network it would take 10 years to depreciate. So people here in the U.S., they just wait for the depreciation and then they'll update. I know other countries in Europe and maybe in Asia, they have a different taxation uh, form that allows them to move faster. So that My guess is that's probably something related to that. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, very interesting. Okay, so, um, so ESLs, we can expect a lot of them. And... Um, you know, how are they, what does that market look like? Uh, where where are you sure. positioned?
2: Sure. You're, you're talking about a, a, a TAM of about $76 billion or so. But I think from from our perspective, uh, which is a fundamental thing of our company, is that it always feels good to remove batteries for sustainability purposes. And by removing tag batteries, I mean, you have thousands of those. But as you said, there are also thousands of those ESL everywhere. So being able to remove those batteries and being able to actually make a network that shares the same infrastructure with uh, different components, whether they're sensors, ESL and so, it's pretty uh, interesting to us. So if you talk at, if you look at the market itself, we're probably talking about over $280 billion of total addressable market that we'll be touching with all the components that we're putting together. And certainly, some of those markets will have vertical markets that we need to go and optimize and be able to get partners to help us deploy. But it's a large market just in those four markets with those three applications that I've talked about.
0: And so, your devices—they can provide the power that these ESLs need. And I mean, my observation is a lot of them are these uh, e-ink type things, where they're not like—it's not like you're having to burn a uh, cathode ray tube that's displaying this thing it's just uh, enough power to change and uh... that's right
2: so the world is changing. basically what you're saying is the world is changing right and the world is changing because devices have to be lower power and the way you actually save energy because we've been wasteful of energy as, as humans is to actually design components that do not burn power so in the case of e-ink and, and those displays that we have in some of our ESL displays they're just basically burn power when they change the image, otherwise they yeah. just they just sit there and don't do much. And the world is, again is going to continue to low. I mean, your tags are very low power. I expect ESL devices to go low power, BLE to go even more low power, Wi-Fi to go low power, and pretty much everything is going to converge at some point in time as as there's more functionality, power goes down, and then we deploy more of these networks.
0: And so the role of that energy's device, which Actually, I should have. I don't know if you have one around. Maybe I do. Let's see if I. Yeah, uh, they're pretty small. Here we are. There we are. Never travel without it. Uh, so. <laughs> I'm sure you plug uh, it in your
2: in your room there and power your Willy tags. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, so, um, but that can be uh, powering the ESLs or something like that can be powering. Oh, the ESLs. So yeah.
2: So our view, we have a much uh, broader. I mean, we're looking at RF power, or the transfer RF of active harvesting energy as an exercise of the deployment of those power bridges. Very similar to Wi-Fi, where you deploy those as needed, maybe every 10 meters or 15 meters. And as you do that, you effectively now have energized the room. And energy is common to all sorts of components, as we pointed out, all the way up to wearables, right? So anything that's in that area where you, let's say, deploy the wheel attacks will also be able to be energized with the same transmitters that you have for ESL and then sensors and so on. So what we are effectively doing is we we are supporting the deployment of the next generation uh, energy transmission system. And as in the case of Wi-Fi, where we ended up deploying uh, Large numbers of transmitters, and people don't realize that today because they just like to use it. But the history is the same. There will be an evolution. You start deploying those, and over time, they'll be so predominant that anywhere you, you go, I mean, you'll have power on the go, the same way you have communications on the go. So that's how we look at it. It's independent of the receivers. Now, once you have that infrastructure, will your tax work flawlessly and, and transparently? ESLs will work, sensors will work, and we're looking at other vertical markets where. Effectively, those receivers will also benefit from it. So now you build a world that is really batteryless in a way. That's great.
0: So you're building an infrastructure. You want a next generation store. You want uh, dynamic pricing, the ability to provide more information, sales, information to your electronic shelf labels, but you also want real-time continuous inventory, you know exactly what's on the shelves. Uh, if something's been put in the wrong place, you can do that with Wiliot Tag. So that's probably a good segue into what you're doing with Wiliot. Would you like to kind of describe a bit? I guess either of us could do this, but you're the guest, so I'll, I'll let you uh, talk a bit about uh, what you're you're doing with Wiliot. Yeah, and
2: feel, feel, feel free to add because you you are the mastermind at Wiliot and you know...
0: I'm not sure whether that's true, but I, I am definitely the talking head. I do more talking about it
2: than most people. Maybe. So, so um, we, we have a partnership with Williott, and certainly there is a way to harvest power from the air. But when it comes to deploying uh, labels, in our opinion, that need to be time critical, that need to be there with a certain uh, priority, and also when it comes to being able to have the right range to be able to have uh, high coverage. I think that's where Energys and Williot work really well together because we, our technology runs at 900 megahertz and while some of your tags are dual band and they operate at 2.4, you can easily extend the range uh, of the devices by three to four times and mm-hmm. by adjusting the duty cycle of the power that we send you can basically play and and decide how, fa- how fast or how slow you want to charge those devices and so on, right? So 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 now what we do with you is we effectively deploy what we call today an intelligent wireless power network, or, or also known by us as active harvesting, as opposed to the fact that the, we have passive harvesting where you try to get power from your Wi-Fi devices and your BLE devices, right? But it's still with With energies, what you get on top of that is that when you're working at 2 and 5 gigahertz today, you're working with communication networks that are really capped to 1 watt. And by using energy technology, you have 1 watt transmitters that will give you that range, that will give you even more duty cycle than what you can get. But now with our latest 15 watt system, you'll actually get 15 times more power than you did before. So you have more range or you'll be able to actually have better coverage or penetration and so on so that's basically how we see each other and certainly there's also the communication channel by which we provide the BLE uh, back channel to control all the receivers and gather the information concentrate the information and then provide that uh, to to your cloud so it's a perfect partnership we add value to each other yes
0: yeah, we, so the way I see the Energis uh, power bridge devices, we call them a bridge. Uh, and it's like a stepping stone between the gateway. The gateway could be a, a Wi-Fi access point that's going from the world of Bluetooth to the world of Wi-Fi and out to the out to the wide area network. Um, and, um, you know, we see a, like a store where for... Really, a very modest amount of money. You can blanket the entire store with a predictable source of energy. And also, your devices are transmitting Bluetooth uh, to supplement the sub gig. Uh, They're calibrating our tags. They're also reading the tags and relaying selectively uh, the interesting information and actually boosting that signal. So you may read a weak signal from a Willieop tag, and then uh, you'll um, relay that and boost it at a much uh, with a much stronger signal that could go 50 meters to a Wi-Fi access point that's, uh, that's out of line of sight. But I think what those stepping stones, your devices do, is they also provide points of location. So you know we can put one of your bridges by in the back room, one in the a front display, one in the changing room, uh, one uh, in the different parts of the store. And suddenly we're we're establishing zones in the store um, where your very cost-effective devices are providing energy. But they're also telling us, oh, that uh, skirt that has been tagged has been moved to the back room. It's now on the shelf. It's moved from the shelf. It's now into the changing room. So if someone goes online and they say, oh, that's the garment I want to buy, the staff aren't running around trying to find where that thing is because of the zones that the Energist uh, bridges have... uh, Right. And and I uh, think
2: that's also the beauty of your labels, right? Because what you have is you have labels that are energized constantly that take advantage of that fact as opposed to, let's say, RFID, right? They're always there. And because they're always there, the latency pretty low and as you move around you effectively know as you pointed out where things are and in the case of other technologies you just cannot do that so you guys have added now smarts and and call it instantaneous responses to, to labels that did not exist before and with our bridges we definitely can keep up on that and as you said point the location control the output power of the transmitters if needed right and, and constrain the areas and build if you want to call it a microcell of uh, energy and, and data that allows us to find thousands and thousands, and as you guys always say, effectively trillions of these devices.
0: Yes. yes. I mean, so you're a member of our partner program that works with the program. We obviously work with many uh, different uh, manufacturers, but the thing I like about Energis is you've done an amazing job on the antenna design, and so um, basically... Um, the coverage and the orientation of the tags means is, is less and less significant. So it's kind of makes the deployments a lot easier, um, and you have excellent range, uh, a lot of power, um, and um, but not too much power. So uh, you know we can start to you know establish these zones in the uh, in in the stores and and figure out where the inventory is in in real time. And I think that's clear. It's a. It's becoming more and more important as retailers are figuring out how to be successful post COVID. It's about letting customers buy any way they want. They want to buy online and pick up in store. They want to buy online and have the store essentially being a a, a, um, a distribution center for for deliveries into the home. Then basically real time inventory becomes essential in that world. Uh, if you're gonna have staff that are really making this a pleasant shopping experience and uh, storytelling and relationship building, they can't be running around trying to find stuff. They need to be focusing on the customer and your infrastructure and the Willyot tag- tags allow them to do that. So I think that's, um, it's a really valuable uh, combination. One of the things that I think you guys are also very good at is certification. And maybe it comes from your heritage of you've been dealing with, you know, the, the highest bar in terms of certification. And, uh,
2: definitely. I mean, I, and I was going to mention that. I'm glad you brought it up. I think what's important here is the fact that the product that we're working with, with it right now has been certified, not just in the U.S. and Canada, but we have certification in uh, India certification in the European Union uh, and uh, believe it or not China which is extremely difficult to get as well as Australia and New Zealand now so we have really covered more than I would say 90 percent of the world's market right now and we're going to be working on a little bit, couple of Asian countries next and we should with that we should pretty much have enough information to cover the whole world which you you will not be able to get with any other vendor and we work really well together on that, yes.
0: Let's, let's just talk a bit about what's going on in Australia, because, uh, you know, we, we're doing a whole bunch of projects. We don't always get to talk about them publicly, uh, but uh, you guys have been making some noise about deployments there. Do you want to just say a few words?
2: Definitely. I mean, as you know, both of us have been working with Flagship, which is a local company in Australia. And sometimes we do a lot of technical work and we forget what we're doing, but as I was, that was telling you, I believe yesterday, is from my perspective, uh, you, we can really claim that the Australians are ahead of everyone in the world because they're, they're the first ones to publicly announce, in my opinion, an active power network that has basically powered multiple retail stores with thousands of RF tax. And I don't know of any other place that has effectively claimed that so far.
0: And yeah, we have the flagship guys on the show um, and you know they're providing the systems that allow the the store of the future to be uh, the software systems for the exactly. store of the future. To so we be announced
2: uh, two, two retail stores I think one of them is identified by name uh, and uh, the second one is not really public yet. and I guess it's called uh, Academy brand, which is a retail company in Australia that has multiple, I guess sites and they're looking at the technology and so far so good which makes us very happy
0: likewise likewise
1: a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance.
0: So Cesar, this is the second segment of the show where we uh, get into a little bit more about you and uh, you've got an amazing job. You're CEO of Energis, which is a really cool company. Um, I'd love to know a bit about your career and how, you know, uh, you've also worked for some other very cool companies. So can you tell, did you know what you wanted to do when you were in college? Is, Is this what you kind of envisaged for yourself?
2: I, I, I knew what I wanted to do when I was nine years old, believe it or not. <laughs> that's amazing. I, I was trying that's to very unusual. Out,
0: very yeah, unusual. Yeah, I
2: was trying to figure out if I wanted to be a doctor, medical doctor, because my mother wanted me to be a doctor, or whether okay. I should be an engineer because my father was an engineer. Okay. And I decided to go for engineering. So that's pretty much what it is. And I wanted to be a, a, a high-voltage power engineer believe it or not. So so I am an electrical engineer, but I wanted to send uh, and, and design transmission lines and substations and things like that, which is not what I'm doing right now. <laughs> oh, I know. You're uh, dealing with power that's not going to kill someone. Uh, that's exactly. Sure. Somehow I ended up doing power, uh, but not that high voltage power that I knew of, 10,000 uh, volts or 20,000 volts or even more than that. <laughs>
0: And Great, so that got yeah. you into university, and you. what did you study in university?
2: Yeah, so, so I, I attended uh, Polytechnic Institute of New York, which is today the engineering school at NYU, uh, also known as Brooklyn Poly in, in uh, New York, second oldest electrical engineering uh, school in the country right after huh. MIT. So very few people know that. <laughs> so uh, I, I went to New York. I mean, I wanted to live there and go to school there. So pretty much and where,
0: where did you grow up? Just I, I grew just... up in
2: uh, Lima, Peru. Okay. Uh, and my, my parents sent me there to, uh, to some relatives so that I could attend college. And the whole idea was that I would be in the US, get educated and go back and work with my father. So what
0: was your life like in Peru? Sorry to interrupt you, but what was your life like in Peru? Your your dad was an engineer, so you were in a middle-class family, I guess.
2: Yeah, we we, we come from an interesting line of engineers, and we ended up uh, basically in Peru through my grandfather, who was an American engineer also. And I ended up uh, living there for a couple of generations and going back and forth between Peru, and the U.S., and it was my turn to come back, and the whole idea was uh, to be educated in the U.S. and go back and, again, work with my dad, but that never happened. I, I decided to just continue here uh, and got interested in electronics, believe it or not. Uh, back in the 80s, early 80s, uh, doing VLSI was really uncommon, and it was not, it was a new technology, and you could not find too many books in BLSi or electronics, and Very few of the professors actually knew about it. So I got interested in electronics, and that was my passion. So I ended up in school at Brooklyn Poly helping my professor opening up the first VLSI lab for the school, that is. And it was probably one of the first VLSI labs in the country.
0: And what did the lab
2: do? Uh, We actually uh, had a deal with Mentor Graphics. Believe it or not, Mentor Graphics was back there with tools, and we were able to get some... Uh, donations from Mentor Graphics by which we had what's called Apollo DN 3000 computers, which were the predecessors to Sun workstations. Right,
0: <laughs> right. So we we got was... the software and
2: my job was to install, then we came up with a set of projects that allowed people to design uh, BLSI uh, uh, circuitry and and pretty much put systems and chips together. So that was the idea because the school didn't have a DLSI. Uh, program by itself. I mean, I, I actually took the first course in BLSI with this professor that eventually uh, took me and, and, uh, to the, into the Bell system. So that's pretty much the story there.
0: Amazing. So how did you get from the lab into industry?
2: So the, the, work, the way it worked is I was offered a 12-week job at Bellcore, Bell Communications Research, which was the, what's called back then the Ma Bell's Research Lab at Bail Labs ended up being the long distance labs. So I worked for the Mabails for 12 weeks and they gave me a project uh, on video transmission over fiber optics. And at the time, uh, my job was to design a effectively a transmitter that will allow you to send uh, what's called broadband ISDN data and, and video over fiber optics. And I only had 12 weeks and I was told that Because it was 12 weeks, I didn't have to finish it. So, I just worked hard and finished it. And that got me my job.
0: (laughs) That's fantastic. You know, some people, I mean, to me, Bell Labs is like the most amazing institution. But some people Mm -hmm. may not know about it. Can you just tell us who who were Bell Labs? What what, what are the technologies that came out of Bell Labs?
2: Oh, there's so many technologies. Uh, So... Bell Labs is the old research labs that was pretty much established by Alexander Graham Bell, who who is effectively the the inventor of the phone. And that was his company and it was a worldwide company that pretty much owned all the telephone network as well as all the research around the world. And then I happened to be at the time one of the last young engineers that actually joined that leftover that uh, had gone through 120 years And I was kind of, uh, I would say, lucky to actually be there because I saw how it it was. But I also saw how it was really taken apart. When I go back and say what it was, I mean, as a young engineer, I could do anything I really wanted to do within, of course, the parameters of what the lab wanted us to do. And there was no restrictions on engineering knowledge, whether you wanted to do hardware, software systems, semiconductors. You did what you had to do to deliver.
0: But this became the research arm of AT&T, right? And they did yeah, so, like so, pioneering so the work on uh, the transistor and fiber optics, and uh, they invented Unix that then became basically yes. the basis of all of the the, the the operating system that's running on your phone. Uh, it's, that's correct. Uh, so the
2: transistor was invented in the Bell system. The telephone switching network was invented in the Bell system. The cellular phone uh, network was invented in the Bell system. The, the concept of using Q in theory for networking was used day and night by the Bell system. The fiber optic transmission systems and the, the rings and the sonnet rings and uh, was invented there. DSL was invented by, by the Bell system. So a number of technologies because we had pretty much 2% of the revenue of the company went into research. Only 2% and we did all that. Now, imagine today, you don't even put 2% and we cannot do much anymore. So I was, I was lucky enough to end up in a place that had enough uh, money to do whatever that was needed to do without any limitations, which you don't do th- anymore in the US and universities don't even, cannot even afford to do that anywhere. So I was, I was happy and, and fortunate to, to see it and I also saw it going, up, going away when I was told that uh, it was the time to do software and the company was going away from hardware.
0: Hmm. So, what happened after Bell? How did you end up leaving?
2: So, I worked in the Bell system for about uh, eight years. And I I worked on broadband ISDN, so transmission of multimedia over fiber optics, all the way from 155 megabits per second, which is nothing now. But back then, we couldn't even build a chip that would run at 40 megahertz or 40 megabits per second. So, we did uh, 155 and I worked up to 2.5 gigabits per second. And then I said to myself, I had enough of this, I have to do something else. So an old friend of mine that, know, who was my boss by the name of Steve Weinstein, who is considered one of the main inventors of OFDM, and you know what OFDM, orthogonal frequency uh, multiplexing division multiplexing, which is pretty much on in communication networks, including Wi-Fi, uh, had moved to a research lab uh, in Princeton, New Jersey, by the name of NEC Research. And I called him up and I told him I was bored and I wanted to do something different. And he offered me to join MEC and work in wireless. And I had never done wireless before. And they wanted to build a multimedia-based wireless system. So that's how I got involved in wireless and started that in 95. And that eventually ended up uh, interesting me in moving into California. Because we used to do research for the sake of being great engineers Mm -hmm. but back east a lot of the jobs were going away and they were coming to the west coast so i I made the right decision at the right time so around 1999 i moved to the west coast worked a little bit on dsl i was in startup doing dsl i worked a little bit on cpus with arc international and then i ended up at broadcom running the wi-fi team for a number of years uh we did some of the first uh single-chip devices, uh, 54G Wi-Fi, then we did some of the first 2x2 two two MIMO, and, as, as, and around 2006 or so, I moved to uh, Marvel Semiconductors, where, where where I was for eight years running pretty much all of the connectivity, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and so on. So, so by then, I was a very strong wireless uh, engineer, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But then somehow, about eight years ago or so, uh, after I once more I get I get bored I get bored of things as you can tell now I get bored of doing wireless communications because it's just repetitive and mm-hmm. a lot of people might not agree with me but I don't see Wi-Fi making any progress since MIMO. It's just been mm-hmm. extending the bandwidth, extending the rate, and that's easy to do. I mean, MIMO was a fundamental change on modulation. So I wanted mm-hmm. to do something different, and I got a phone call from. Energist, where they actually wanted to do wireless power. They wanted to do wireless RF energy. And then I said to myself, well, I wanted to be a power engineer. I know wireless. Why not? So let's see what we can do. So the idea was to merge my research background with my engineering background and then see if we could do something like that. So that's pretty much what happened. Then I joined energies run engineering. I was the COO for about uh, three years, and now I'm the CEO for almost a year now. So that, that pretty much is it.
0: <laughs> okay, so if you want to be CEO of a company like Energy, it's as simple as that. That's all you have to do. That's a fast it's, path. That's quite path a journey. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. So how did your dad feel about you not going back to Peru? That must have been tough.
2: It's It was it was tough, but at the same time, it was the right decision. Uh, at the time, Peru was going through a lot of, uh, I would say, guerrilla problems, and they had mm-hmm. destroyed pretty much the the country so it did mm-hmm. not make sense for for me to go back so his feedback to me was stay back home where grandpa is from and don't right. come back <laughs> very very <laughs> interesting happened.
0: yeah well that that was fascinating on to the last uh, question of the show which is about music and uh, I, I don't know how big a deal music is for you but did you manage to think of three songs that are yeah. Your
2: favorites? yeah yeah so so I, I like a lot of songs I and mean, it's not just one song but the, what i ended up with is that there are certain stages in your life that make a big difference and mm-hmm. for me since you asked me the right question which is what did you do after you left peru i think that that stage from where i left peru and i worked in the east coast in the u.s is what really sets who i am and what i know and pretty much my behavior and what I do in life. So what I decided to do is come up with three songs that effectively remind me of the 1980s, right? In a way.
0: I love this already. I love it. Okay. So
2: (laughs) the first song song that I came up with was uh, A Matter of Fact, which is Billy Joel. And Billy Joel was very popular back then. He's one of the most famous uh, uh, musicians out there. And everyone knows of him, so I think a matter of trust is important. From, from, from the fact that if I if I hear this song, I I still remember when I was seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old, and that's Focus. when again my my whole personality started really being focused, and 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 I I really went into that engineering direction. Uh, the second song, which really brings me back you know, big memories, has to be basically Fran Sinatra. New York, New York. I mean, I was in the middle of New York. I know a lot of people don't like New York, but a lot of people nowadays love New York. So I New love. York is like the national anthem of, of uh, New York City. And I think that song is very important because if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And that is true. I mean, I made it there and I'm trying to make it everywhere. <laughs> so that's Excellent. the second thing. So 1980s. And I think the third one, it's more about life. It more, it's more about what you want to do and what you end up doing in life. And I would say Francine Natra, my way, is extremely important. Because at the end, it's all about what you, who you were, what you did. And certain times, you had to do it your way. So I think those three are the important ones. That Again, they're not the only ones, but it really focuses on very, very focused and very uh, uh, fundamental things in my life
0: yeah those are great choices in my way it's such a iconic song and I was just trying to think I don't think we've ever had that This, I think you're like guessed, approximately guest 160 something and I think that's the first time it came up but it's a great choice and I enjoyed it well Caesar, you've been very generous thanks so much for uh, talking with us I, I really really enjoyed it
2: likewise and thank you for inviting me
0: so that was my conversation with Caesar. I really love these discussions about uh, our guests' careers. It's, um, it's 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 always a fascinating story, and Caesar's is especially. So that's uh, another show. We really appreciate you uh, watching and, uh, and listening. And uh, if you want to do us a favor, say something about it on social media. Tell a friend. Rate or review us on whatever platform that you use. But most importantly, um, see us uh, next time.